Let's talk a little bit about fertilizers right now, particularly one ingredient whose number you may see on the front of a fertilizer bag or box or container. You know those three numbers on a fertilizer container? They represent the N, the P, and the K, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And today we're going to talk about phosphorus, a macronutrient. It's an element used by plants to promote root and tuber growth, as well as the production of flowers and seed. And according to the Chicago Botanic Garden, when too much phosphorus is applied or is applied at the wrong time, such as right before it rains, most of it is washed away. It ends up in the local waterways. And that causes something called eutrophication, which is a reduction of dissolved oxygen in water bodies caused by an increase of minerals and organic nutrients of rivers and lakes. Now, this reduced level of oxygen in water ends up suffocating the fish. So you can understand why several municipalities and even states have banned the use of phosphorus-containing fertilizers for turf or lawn areas. These laws are designed to protect local water quality issues in lakes, streams, and ponds. And according to several experts, in most cases, phosphorus isn't even needed to maintain a healthy lawn. Retailers near towns that have enacted a ban are required to alert customers about the prohibition of phosphorus in fertilizers for lawn and turf by posting a sign where fertilizers are sold. Some of the states that are banning the use or sale of phosphorus fertilizers include Illinois, Maine, Maryland, Michigan, Minnesota, New Jersey, New York, Vermont, Virginia, Washington, and Wisconsin. A couple of more uh, are standing by, Pennsylvania and Florida, as well as several cities and counties, especially those places that border large bodies of water. But this ban isn't just for phosphorus on lawns. Phosphorus, as well as nitrogen limits, are facing bans in all fertilizers offered for sale in Brevard County, Florida. They have a new law going into effect there that basically are saying no nitrogen or phosphorus can be applied to any plants between June 1st and September 30th. When applying a fertilizer with nitrogen, it must contain a minimum of 50% slow-released nitrogen. Phosphorus can only be applied if a soil test indicates it's needed, and there are limits to how much phosphorus you can put on, and you are not supposed to fertilize if heavy rain is forecast. And some municipalities there in Brevard County, Florida, have either a 10-foot or a 15-foot fertilizer-free zone if they're bordering water bodies. If you're just in the unincorporated county, it could be a 25-foot fertilizer-free zone along the waterways. And they also uh, want you to keep fertilizer and grass clippings on the lawn and off sidewalks, driveways, roads, and out of storm drains and water bodies. According to the EPA, the United States mines and consumes about 23 million tons of phosphate rock per year. Most of it, something like 95%, is involved with a wet process phosphoric acid or a super phosphoric acid intended in the making of fertilizers with the balance used to produce phosphorus compounds for industrial applications, primarily for glyphosate herbicide. You know, glyphosate, the active ingredient in a product such as Roundup. Probably the most important use of phosphate rock is in the production of phosphate fertilizers. And according to my next guest, due to its chemical properties, phosphate rock may contain significant quantities of naturally occurring radioactive materials. And he says some of it's not even organic. 
What's that all about? We must be talking with the garden contrarian, Robert Couric. He's the author of the book Sustainable Food Gardens and several other publications like Lazy Ass Gardening, Understanding Roots, the Insectary Calendar, and Drip Irrigation for Every Landscape and All Climates. Robert, good to talk with you again. And that video you posted a few weeks ago about phosphorus and radiation was, was a shocker. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Uh, I first heard about it when I was reading around somewhere, and I got hold of an article about radioactive tailing piles in Florida. When they mine the phosphorus, they strip mine it, the phosphorus rock, uh, they treat it with sulfuric acid, and then they're left with huge piles, over a billion tons of phosphate for, uh, tailings that are radioactive. They're radioactive enough that when the cost of uranium was high, they would go back into the tailings and harvest the uranium. Now, the, what happens when you produce so-called organic phosphate fertilizer, colloidal phosphate fertilizer, is that that uh, rock is not treated with sulfuric acid, but it's treated with water. Um, but it comes out to where I took it to a local business that deals with radioactivity and they put it in their Geiger counter and it was about three to four times more clicks per minute or second than the background radiation. I noticed that on his uh, little Geiger counter there that I saw readings up to 140, whereas the background era radiation was like in the 30s or so. Yes, so it changes around depending on the minute or the location, but basically it's slightly radioactive. Now, whether or not to get worried is depends upon your paranoia level. I myself, if I were using it anymore, I would uh, use a mask just to keep the particulates out of your lungs. One of the guys that worked at the radioactive uh, business he used to be a farmer, and he said he wouldn't, but he said he's not that cautious as a person. So it's up to the gardener as to how much radioactivity they want to be exposed to. But there was a guy whose name I can't recall who studied phosphate fertilizers for their content of heavy metals and radioactivity, and he said there's not a single phosphate source in the world that doesn't have some level of radon I believe that. And uh, the fact that, uh, as you mentioned, the uh, manufacturers of phosphorus are also have a nice little side business in, in mining for uranium as well. Is it that process that makes it, in your estimation, not organic? I like to think of it as the cradle-to-grave review of organic. In other words, uh, the phosphorus is mining ugly strip mines and then it's processed with fresh water which is in a low supply in florida uh, then it generates these slightly radioactive tailings and then you're putting on the train or truck a bulk that only three percent of what is what you want to have and that would be the phosphate and when you put down that phosphate uh, 3% of the sack, uh, less than half of that might be available the first season. The trucking costs and the carbon footprint are phenomenal. 
I like the video portion where you are basically uh, trawling out this phosphorus out of a bag uh, for your sample to take into the uh, radiation place. And it was just a messy, dusty powder. And I could understand why you might want to wear a mask just for that. Yeah, just for the sake of it's dusty as opposed to radioactive. Now, there's another interesting story. Uh, DeSantis people have now approved the radioactive tailings to be used in road base. (laughs) And it's going to be studied by the federal government to see if they can be used in federal applications. I mentioned, too, the restrictions in Florida. Well, of course, that's being reviewed now down in Florida, too. They want to uh, put a delay on the uh, implementation of those rules. Yeah, yeah. The, The main concern about phosphorus for the quote, industry is the runoff and causing algae bloom. A wise home gardener would first test the soil and see if they need phosphorus and then apply only small amounts. And it would probably be more cautious and better to run any phosphate fertilizer through a compost pile so it would kind of help activate it and hold on to it uh, before you apply it to the garden. Are there forms of phosphate fertilizer that you would use? Well, the the option to colloidal phosphate, the first one would be bone meal. But the drawback to bone meal is it uses a phenomenal amount of energy to generate the drying process and the treating process. But I don't know, I doubt if it's radioactive. (laughs) That's about five times the amount of phosphorus per volume than colloidal phosphate. But what I like to do is grow it. Why not make your own phosphorus and why not do it by growing it? And we will get into that. I, I, I do want to get into that because that, that's intriguing. But I, I want to stress something that you, we've said twice now, and that is before you apply any fertilizer, get a soil test done to see if you really need it. You probably need nitrogen, but phosphorus is in a lot of soils already. And when people over apply phosphorus, if it doesn't get used, it's going to run off. But also it's going to contaminate your soil, so to speak. I I know a very famous gardener who shall remain anonymous, and their garden is now uh, useless because they applied copious quantities of compost and just a regimen of fertilizers without doing a soil test, and now they can't use their soil. It's, it's uh, too much phosphorus by a factor of four or five. Uh, too much potassium by a factor of three or four goes on and on, and and their vegetables just aren't growing. Yeah, I have discovered in, in my own piece of property here, before I planted anything, I did get a soil test done. And the backyard was very different than the front yard. The front yard was just a little under the recommended amount of phosphorus, whereas the backyard was just way over the amount of phosphorus in the soil. So I knew at that point, well, we're talking basically nitrogen fertilizer then for the backyard. We've got plenty of phosphorus. Exactly. And you'd be surprised how many gardeners just say, okay, I'm going to apply all this stuff every year and they don't need it. In some cases, they're adding toxicity in the sense of too much of of the element that makes it difficult for plants. For a lot of people, though, a soil test might be 
more than their wallet can handle because they can run into $100 or more in many cases. However, I know of at least three universities, and there's probably more, that do soil testing for any American, and it's a very thorough test, and it's around $20 or so, and you get a, a very nice report afterwards. They are the University of Massachusetts Amherst, Colorado State, and Texas A&M. And if there are other universities uh, that are doing that uh, for the United States, as a whole, let me know. I, I'd, I'd be glad to add you to that list. But for that kind of price, it's well worth it to get a soil test done. I uh, I used Harmony Farm Supply in Sonoma County. I think it's around twenty twenty five dollars. But the advantage to Harmony Farm Supply is they give you a report that tells you how much organic fertilizer to add for each element. A lot of these universities, they just tell you what the content is and don't interpret it as to how much uh, of blood meal, bone meal, uh, so on, that you might need to add to, to get a balanced nutrient level. Is Harmony Farm Supply still doing soil testing? Yes. I've uh, talked to them, and uh, they have it on their website, Harmony Farm Supply uh, in Grayton, California. And you can mail in your sample, then they have it processed, and then they mail you back or, or not email you. They email you back an interpretation of that soil test. Okay, we'll have a link to Harmony uh, Farm Supply uh, in the show notes. Uh, I know that the University of Massachusetts Amherst, in their recommendations, of, you have to fill out a questionnaire first, including well, what do you plan to grow here? And then based on that, they will give you recommendations on the soil test as far as what to apply and how much. There won't be organic recommendations, though, necessarily. Right. And I'm sure Harmony Farm Supply would be organic recommendations. Yes. They'll say how much blood meal or feather meal or bone meal uh, or how much uh, uh, other organic fertilizers you might use to get back up to where the level is normal. Well, you just mentioned three fertilizers, though, that vegans may shy away from, blood meal, bone meal, and feather meal. <laughs> yeah, that's where you have to grow your own, both legumes for the nitrogen and buckwheat for the phosphorus. There's your answer right there, grow your own phosphorus. Well, golly gee, that's the name of a section uh, in your book, Sustainable Food Gardens, there on 250. You get into the details of how to grow your own phosphorus, and basically it's a lot of cover cropping, isn't it? Yeah, green manuring in the sense that you throw out the seed, let it grow till it gets two to six inches tall, and dig it back in, and do that as many times as you can in the one summer, like two to four to five times, and then you'll greatly improve the phosphorus content because buckwheat is known as a dynamic accumulator phosphorus. So its foliage is rich, rich in uh, phosphorus. And by tilling it in, you add that to the soil. You mentioned in your book uh, a, a recipe that Elliot Coleman supplies. And he says, one possible rotation to prepare a fertile garden bed, seed winter rye in the fall, undersow it with biennial sweet clover the following spring, mow the rye in midsummer, let the sweet clover grow through the winter, mow the clover the second summer, and follow it with buckwheat. Mow the buckwheat in the fall and sow a, a rye hairy vetch mix. Till this in in the spring and plant vegetables, the mowed cover crops can be used to make compost. So you're basically taking a garden out of a commission for about three years there. Yeah, you would have to do a rotation. And now some gardens are too small to do that. 
but uh, the vegan uh, gardeners in England are totally opposed to the fertilizers you mentioned, and they uh, grow their own fertilizers, and they have a section up to 25% of their, their garden or their allotment is just growing a crop to improve the soil. So if you have enough room, you can rotate through and after two, three years, uh, grow a really good crop where you did your uh, organic fertilizer, so to speak. Yeah, if you have the room, it makes sense to practice crop rotation instead of having one big garden. Uh, divide that into six or more plots and uh, rotate through nitrogen fixing crops, your uh, fertilizer fixing uh, cover crops, and and just alternate so that it, it's not too stressed uh, two years in a row from, uh, say, from heavy nitrogen feeders. Yeah, now Elliot's a great guy, but he's a farmer and he's got a farm and that's a lot of space. Exactly. Yeah. But if you think about it, uh, to quote uh, Leo Tolstoy, how much land does a man need? <laughs> you could get by on the short term of, of just dividing it into smaller plots and, and, and rotating through those smaller plots. Yes, I agree. All right. So buckwheat. Uh, for I know for USDA zone nine, it would be a summer crop, correct? Yes. All right. It won't go through. It won't even go through the winter here. Okay, so that that would be your summer cover crop, and uh, winter cover crops could be any number of things. For phosphorus, you can get some phosphorus out of some of the legumes as well. They're not just used for nitrogen. But when you live in other places, I grew up in St. Louis. They can grow a lot of buckwheat crop rotation uh, because it gets so hot there. The buckwheat loves the heat. I forget where I read it, but I read somewhere that uh, dandelions actually fix some uh, phosphorus as well. I believe so. I'd have to double check my own book. (laughs) 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 But, yeah, that's why I do these charts in my book. I can download stuff I can't keep in my brain. Well, let's talk about the book. I mean, it, it, this uh, last book you came out with, it is a 400-plus page tome of, of good gardening advice called Sustainable Food Gardens, Myths and Solutions. Yeah, I worked on it during the pandemonium. I, I spent about uh, 18 months uh, putting the book together. And it's kind of like a summary of my 40 years in the organic uh, gardening business. Yeah, it's got to just about everything that we've talked about for 30 years or so in it. Yep, it's uh, uh, over 350 color photographs as well. And charts and diagrams and and, and some wonderful uh, antique uh, uh, drawings as well. Yeah, the USDA had a program back in the late 1800s and early 1900s where they paid hundreds of people to draw color drawings of fruits, edibles. Um, so you can have everything from quince to persimmon to anonas, the uh, cherimoyas and cashews. And so they uh, have these wonderful drawings. You can go to the USDA website. Um, I don't know the, the location off the top of my head, but Google uh, USDA uh, watercolor vegetables or something and check it out. The, anybody can use the images as long as you give a notation of the source. So that's what I did. That would explain its presence on Twitter because somebody is doing that on Twitter, posting one of those lithographs or whatever they are, like one a day of, of, of old timey fruits. Fantastic. 
Robert Curry has a, a very active website as well where you can order his books and, and learn a lot more about gardening. I, I imagine it's robertcurric.com. You bet, but you have to spell it K-O-U-R-I-K. Sounds like Katie Couric, uh, but she misspells it. Okay. And actually, Robert is Robert, so it's R-O-B-E-R-T-K-O-U-R-I-K. If you just do a search for Robert Couric, or even if you do a, side, a, a search for your title of your book, Sustainable Food Gardens, you just might pop up. It'll be number one on the first page. All right. Robert Couric, I, I still like to call him the garden contrarian because we've learned a, <laughs> a lot of from him over the years that uh, basically uh, threw cold water on a lot of uh, established uh, gardening habits over the years. And in fact, it's, it's one of uh, Farmer Fred's 11 tips for gardening success. Everything you know is wrong. And and Robert Couric is always there to uh, point us in the in a different direction. And that yeah. in, included drip irrigation as well. And providing the solutions. There you go. That That's a good life to have. So if you want one takeaway from this whole conversation is get a soil test done on your garden to make sure that it has all the nutrients it needs and not too much of any one as well. Pick up a copy of Robert Couric's book, Sustainable Food Gardens. You can find it as well at his website, robertcouric.com. Robert, always a pleasure talking gardening with you. Thanks, Fred. I really enjoy it as well.